Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Good afternoon, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on Top Talks Radio. Thanks for making us a part of your afternoon again today. As always, we've got our ongoing series with the Medical Association of Georgia, and uh, I'm tickled to be joined in studio by the MAG Executive Director and CEO, Donald J. Palmasano, Jr., well, thank you. Thank you for having us, CW. We really do appreciate this opportunity. And I'm still sitting here just trying to kind of wrap my arms around the, the event you just did. We were talking about before we went live today. Um, so talk about the Olmstead 100-mile endurance race real quick before okay. we get on to the important topics of the day. Because this was quite a big deal as well, because from what I understand, you raised some big-time money for some charity events. So... Tell people about what you were doing. Absolutely. Uh, the Medical Association of Georgia Foundation, which is um, the, the philanthropic side of the Medical Association of Georgia, um, we do a campaign called the Think About It Campaign, which right. addresses prescription drug abuse. Well, for this campaign, um, I agreed to run 100 miles at the Umstead um, Endurance 100-mile challenge. <laughs> and also, Trey Reese with Hall Booth and uh, Smith also ran the race, and he also did 100 miles. And so uh, we, we did finish within our goal of under 24 hours. Um, I ran it in uh, 23 hours and 41 minutes, just barely made it under the goal. But we did raise uh, over $40,000 to combat prescription drug abuse and also to get the, the, the naloxone kits to the police officers. So when they do come upon somebody who's having an overdose, they can save a life. I mean, that's, that's really cool. I, I can only imagine just being just getting yourself involved in an event like that um, and finishing it in and of itself would be obviously quite the rush. But to think about the added impact of what you did for, I mean, who knows how many people that's going to have an impact on. That's That's got to be quite rewarding for you. Well, it, it, it was great. And especially with uh, people like Dallas Gay and uh, Dr. Jack Chapman, who's yeah. the president of the MAG Foundation, um, their support, especially when you get to like mile 80, 81, and um, it, it was, you know, about 27 degrees in the middle of the night. <laughs> and so uh, when, when you when you want to quit and you realize, well, if I quit, then the foundation's not going to get this money. So it was a great motivating factor. So we really did. Um, it was a great event. And, and I can't thank enough our supporters. Uh, we had over 80 people contribute to the campaign. Individuals, individuals. and companies alike, or was it yes. all individuals giving money? Um, individuals and companies. And so it, it was great to have that many supporters. So I can't thank all these supporters enough for, right. for, their, for their charity. Well, good for, for them for uh, joining up with you to do that. And, and, and hats off to you and your, your colleagues for making it to the finish line like that. that that's quite a feat. Well, thank you. Well, you know, and... and, and not to minimize that, but you're also working on some other major issues that we're going to get into today because uh, some things are afoot. So let's get down into that. You were, we were going to be talking about some events that are going on in the legislature that affect the way insurance contracts and things like that go. Um, Senate Bill 158, I believe it was. That's correct. Uh, sponsored by Senator Dean Burke. We'll talk about that a little bit because it's got a fairly broad range of, of impacts on the 
you know, our environment as it relates to the way insurance contracting works and things like that, from what I understand. Absolutely. Um, if you go back to the 1990s and you look at how insurance companies and, and patients and physicians all did business together, most of them were uh, full insurance plans, indemnity plans, pretty straightforward. Well, over time, um, the, the contracting has, has evolved to where you now have different um, organizations that come between the physician and the patient. So while a physician may have a contract with a particular company, another company may utilize that particular contract without the physician's knowledge. And so when you see this web that has developed in terms of, of contracting for physicians, but also with patients because the patients are being negatively impacted, that's what Senate Bill 158 tries to address is how do you define these relationships so that patients have an understanding of what their policy actually covers that physician, physicians know who is actually paying the bill and that the, the contracts they agree to are going to be honored and that these contracts are not going to, the terms of the contracts are not going to simply be changed unilaterally at, at, at the insurance company's um, whim. I remember seeing a graphic after the first time you came by, you showed me a graphic that illustrated what you're talking about there, about the variety of entities between payer and provider. And I, trying to track, I mean, it literally was, it was spaghetti Correct. with uh, the line between this one and that one and that one and this one and, and all the different directions that uh, these different relationships go. I mean, I can, I, I, I glossed over, my, my eyes glossed over, you know, trying to follow it. Absolutely. And some of those relationships are governed by what we call silent PPOs or we call rental networks. And so what actually happens is that you will have a physician who may have a contract with, let's just say, insurance company A. Uh, patient is insured by insurance company B. Insurance company B um, does not contract with the, with the physician for whatever reason. So the physician in that situation will be considered non-participating because they're not in the network. Mm -hmm. And so if the patient sees this particular physician, they're going to have a higher out-of-network cost right. that goes with the patient. Well, in this situation, patient comes in to see the physician. Physician is expecting a certain payment from insurance company B. Turns out insurance company B then plugs the physician's name into a database, and then it pulls all the contracts that the physician may have. And insurance company B may have a contract with insurance company A who has a contract with the physician. So insurance company B will take the benefit of the discount that insurance company A gets, but still charge the patient out of network. So it goes to their out of network deductible, even though the uh, insurance company B is getting the benefit of the, the contractual discount through insurance company A. And keep in mind, insurance company B does not steer any business to the physician. Yeah, because they're out of network. Correct. And so the patient is harmed because the patient now is paying a higher percentage than what they contractually agreed to with the insurance company in those type of situations. But the patient never knows. So outside of this kind of conversation right, right here where we're sharing information like this, I mean, clearly a lot of our listeners to this particular show with the Medical Association of Georgia, I'm sure, is going to be comprised of MAG members because they want to know what's going on and, and listen to that kind of information. But... I mean, what what can I as a patient do about that? Anything? Well, absolutely. Keep in touch with your physician. That you that when when the bill comes in and ask the physician questions, and the physicians are more than happy to answer those questions because sometimes the patient is able to figure out why this cost this higher cost has been imposed upon them, and also the physician can educate the patient and say maybe your policy is not is is not paying out fairly to what you should be being paid. 
that's one of the issues, and that's what this particular bill tries to do, Senate Bill 58, is to address these rental networks. To say there's got to be some disclosure because okay. the physician never knows that this particular that insurance company B took the discount until they receive what's called the explanation of benefits. Then they figure out, wait, there's a different payer than what I contracted with who's, who's utilizing this discount. Another way to think about it is that we all have mortgages on our homes. Mm -hmm. And so let's say you have mortgage company A. That's who you sign the contract with. Well, if mortgage company A sells the con your mortgage to B or to you mortgage company C, yeah. you get the letter. And, yeah. But the terms don't change. Right. In these situations, that's not what's happening. As the contract gets sold or the physician gets utilized through the network, the contractual terms change. So the contract that the physician has is not always the contract that they're be is being worked off of in terms of, of, of utilizing the particular service. Now, if I am a patient in that mm -hmm. situation and I'm, I'm with company B, company B has a relationship of some sort with company A and they, they do what you're describing where they, they reimburse the physician on the discounted rate and charge me the out of network rate. Um, do I have any kind of recourse um, or is it, she's too bad, so sad, you should have read the fine print that's in there someplace, you should have dug deeper for it. I mean, do I, if I, once I know this and I get into that situation, I've gone for care and what the heck, why is my bill so big, that kind of thing. Um, I mean, does the, how, how often does a patient even get to know that that's the case? Do they, do they, do they, the, does the patient always end up thinking, well, geez, Dr. Palmisano was out of network, so that's why my bill was so high. Correct. Patients rarely ever pick up on it because— and it's the doctor's office that catches it. It's the doctor's office that catches it. How often do they catch it? It depends on uh, the size of the practice. It depends on um, the volume that the practice has in yeah, terms of— seem if, that would really rely on a, on a bird dog billing person to say, wait a second, we're, we're not contracted with Company B. Correct. And, and more often than not, the practices do not pick up on it because of the volume of claims yeah, that are I coming imagine, in yeah. and trying to keep track of all of that. So, you know, ultimately, it's the patients that are being impacted by this. And it just always goes back to the patients are getting the short end of the stick in this particular situation because they never realize that they're paying a hot, higher out-of-pocket cost than they should according to the terms of their agreement with their insurance company. So when we talk about rental networks, that's what we're talking about, where, where some company can kind of sort of piggyback in some way onto another company. That's correct. I see. And so the 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 upside for them is the discounts they receive in their uh, – their benefits payouts to the, the providers. Correct. And they can continue to, as you're saying, charge me the out-of-network side of things. Correct. So they just widen their margin. Exactly. And the reason why they typically do this is because they do not have a network of physicians in a particular area. So if they're trying to get maybe a public payer program or something along those lines to try to be uh, the provider um, to be the administrator for that program, they have to have what's called a sufficient or an adequate network. And in those particular cases, that's how they try to build their network because they're unable to um, or just don't have, the, don't have the physicians in their network in that area. And when we talk about, I don't know if the network adequacy comes to mind, is that what we're talking about there is it relates to having a, a big enough spectrum of of contracts out there that that you're working with is that correct yeah network adequacy that that is part of it it also can be associated with um 
just any type of the, the insurance company's network of physicians. So you've seen a lot of the challenges come about because of the Affordable Care Act and dealing with um, the health insurance exchanges. But you've also seen it now where the companies are selling to the patients their network of physicians versus more along the lines of what they used to sell was the HMO product or the PPO product, those type of things. So before you would buy the product, now you're buying the network of physicians and to have access to those physicians. But here's what's happening. And we have multiple documentation on this, where the directories that are used by the patients, when the patient decides to sign up for a plan, they look at that directory. And that directory can change by the week. It can change by the day. And I've had the insurance companies tell me this, that it actually changes that much. Okay, So what you're buying at that moment may not be the same network of physicians that you have six months down the line. So there's a, there's a statement somewhere that says, subject to change without notice. Correct. <laughs> we, we've actually got portions of the state where the insurance companies have left up the network, and they say they have an adequate network. So I'm a patient. I moved to a new county, let's just say rural Georgia somewhere. I go out there. I look at, at the directory of physicians, and I say, well, this looks like it has about 85 physicians on there. But I don't know any of the physicians. I don't even live in the area, right? I'm just moving there. Right. So what we've had actual instances of is that when the patient looks at that directory and then the directory was sent over to us to take a look at, we found out that in five to six circumstances in that directory, the physicians don't even live in the community anymore. They had moved years before. We have multiple, cha- uh, multiple physicians that were listed as maybe a pediatrician when they're a psychiatrist, those type of things. And then you have situations where they say primary care physicians. Well, the physician happens to be a hospitalist and they don't take office hours. But the patient doesn't know that. So what value is this network to that patient? So they're paying a certain amount of money for this, but yet they're not really receiving the benefit of what they're purchasing. So the Senate Bill 158 is trying to tackle that by forcing the companies that are engaged in the rental network type way of doing business um, to gain their adequate network status. Correct. Um, the, the 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 legislation is working to make them have to report that, much like your example earlier with the mortgage company. Look, this has changed, even if they have to do so electronically nowadays since it's changing Correct. so it's, frequently. It, it's requiring them to keep them up to date. It's requiring them to have the, the right physicians in the network. So by way of an example, let's say that uh, I have MS, multiple sclerosis, okay? And so if I'm a patient with multiple sclerosis, I go look through the directory, and there are many uh, instances where there are certain neurologists who are recognized for their treatment of multiple sclerosis, that yeah. even the other neurologists refer to them. Yeah. Okay? But the company will say we have an adequate network because we have neurologists in it, but not neurologists that deal with multiple sclerosis. Like probably because it's probably more expensive to treat those patients, so we exclude them from our network, I would assume. Exactly. That, yeah. And so what ends up happening is a patient who, who had their neurologist that treats specifically multiple sclerosis, that, that physician is no longer in network. Patient goes to another physician who that's not their concentration. Next thing you know, the patient declines and then finally is able to get back to the other physician because the physician fights to get back into the network for that particular patient. And we actually have examples of this where that particular patient has now been stabilized, but the adverse effects have resulted in loss of schooling for one particular patient and now they're unable to graduate. It's those type of situations that the patients are being negatively impacted, but yet 
there hasn't been an, the ability to have some recourse here. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're looking for, is to ensure that these patients that are purchasing these policies have the adequate network of physicians that can treat you know, whatever ailments they may have. Executive Director and CEO Donald J. Palmasano Jr. is sitting in studio with us today, and we're talking about some changes going on as it relates to Senate Bill 158, an effort to kind of bring greater transparency to the landscape that deals with the way insurance companies um, handle what they call rental networks and, and the whole notion of network adequacy that, as Donald has been describing, really negatively impacts the patient on the, on the end of things, uh, forcing them to pay out-of-network rates that they didn't anticipate because they thought that they were signing up for a particular network that has changed yesterday or was inaccurate when it was posted, things like that. And so where does the, where does the legislation stand right now? I mean, is it still in a place where we need to be ringing somebody's phone and talking to them about, hey, we need to make sure this passes? Where, where does it stand? Uh, it, with the General Assembly that just concluded, it's now been put into a study committee. And so it'll be looked at over the summer. And so what we wanted to do this year was to get the message out there of what's happening to patients, because physicians advocate for their patients. And so we needed to get that out there and start educating the legislature, saying this is what's happening. So I'll give you one more example on this, because I, I'm amazed at, 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 that some of this is allowed to happen mm-hmm. with the insurance yeah, industry. seriously. So a uh, particular portion of the state, hospital is in-network with uh, the particular insurance company. The hospital has an exclusive contract with a physician to provide certain services. The physician is not has tried to get on in-network with the particular insurance company to which the insurance company has denied them because they're trying to build a very narrow network, which goes to the adequacy issue. Now, why do they do that? Is it just because, well, like I mentioned earlier, when we used the neurology ex- example, where this physician gets left out because the patient population that they treat tends to be on the higher risk scale or greater severity scale of whatever particular specialty we're talking about, in this case, neurology. So his patients are expensive, so you're not included. Is that kind of how exactly. it works? Exactly. It goes to the higher cost. Uh-huh. And I'll give you another example if you want on that one, too. But on, under the original example, patient has to go to this particular hospital, okay? So patient gets sick, goes to this hospital. Hospital has an exclusive contract with this physician who's out of network, Physician then has to bill the patient out of network. So the insurance company then says, look what the physicians are doing behind the scenes. They're charging higher out-of-network prices to these particular poor patients. But yet what they're not telling you is that they're refusing to negotiate or even to have any type of contract with these physicians in order to benefit these type of patients. So that's what's happening. We've had instances of where the physician was a part of – was in network and, and had contracts with two hospitals – so what the insurance company did is they told the doctor, we want you to refer to this particular hospital, even though we have contracts with both hospitals. And the physician said, well, why is that? And they said, because that's a cheaper hospital to refer to. And, but you've got to keep in mind, some hospitals are teaching institutions. Some hospitals are level one trauma centers. I mean, there's right. a broad spectrum of hospitals. Right. And so this particular physician is being pressured to now send their patients one way or the other, despite what the physician believes is in the best care of that particular patient. And the patient may be driving past the hospital that's on the way to the other one that's Correct. miles from their house. Correct. Oh. Well, clearly that's something that folks need to be getting on the horn to. Is there a particular 
set of representatives that we should be reaching out to 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 talk to about it? Uh, at this point, I would. Or not. is it beyond that? Just kind of keep an eye on. I it. would keep an eye on it because when the when the general assembly comes back in 2016, this will be an issue. It's Senate Bill 158. Senator Dean Burke has been an outstanding advocate on this. Um, he is a physician by background. He does understand the issues, and he has seen these problems. And so it's great to have an advocate that understands and can protect the patients, and he's done a fantastic job. One of the things that we've talked about in the past is, this, is the sustainable growth rate. You want to talk about that? Where's, where are things sitting with, with that whole issue with Medicare and all that? Well, right now, um, for those that don't know, the sustainable growth rate is how um, physicians are paid under uh, Medicare. And in this particular case, the, the, the sustainable growth rate is a formula that's been used since 1997 and has required what, what they call 17 patches because uh, the, the formula is flawed. And so I can't believe that. Exactly. I mean, it's the shock. <laughs> and so at this point, physicians are, have, have um, as of April 1st, a 21% cut um, to physicians has been enacted. And so um, right now, CMS, um, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, will hold claims for 14 days. And so the House passed a bill, H.R. 2, um, which addresses, which repeals the, the SGR, and then it puts forth a new policy going forward for how physicians will be paid under Medicare. And so what's happened, it's sitting in the Senate right now. And as of tomorrow, um, the, the, the cuts, claims can start being processed. So we're hoping that the Senate takes up the vote um, to address the H.R. 2 and, and hopefully pass H.R. 2 to, to then repeal the SGR and, and, let's, and, and ensure that, that seniors going forward have that the, the care that they need and so access to care. So you're saying that if if it passes, then the 21 percent reduction in reimbursement rate through Medicare does not happen. Is that correct. What you're saying? That's correct. I mean, imagine that, folks. If you're not a, if you're not a physician listening today, imagine going into your office today, and they say, "Hey, um, this the, the, this afternoon your your new pay is eighty thousand. Last year it was a hundred thousand, but uh, now it's going to be eighty thousand going forward, and it might go down again next year." Correct. <laughs> I mean, correct. Come on, it's uh, that's that's what I find just baffling. There's got to be a better way. Well, especially because, it, like any business, physicians are, are businesses, and so when they put forth their budget and their expenses and how much it's going to cost to run the practice for that year. Any interruption in the middle of the year, such as a 21% cut, that happens. And that goes in, boom. It goes, like, yesterday it was this, today it's that. Correct. Yeah, it's not next year. Correct. We've gotten some of those notices through our practice. Exactly. And so right now, the, it, it, you can go to the MAG website, and we have it on our website to contact um, Senators Isaacson and Senators Purdue um, to ask them to to um, vote in favor of H.R. 2 and, and get this matter to the floor so that we can continue to have access for seniors to their doctors. Yeah, and I, I don't know if our, our listeners out there who aren't physicians or are associated with physician practices like like I happen to be necessarily understand that that's one of the primary ways. When we talk about Medicare reform, at least in my experience so far in the healthcare sector these last few years, to a couple of decades since I've been around it, when we talk about healthcare reform as much as anything, it means paying the doctors less this year than last year. It's it's Correct. It's almost... That, that's where we're saving money. Correct. And so for a patient out there who's listening, what does it typically mean? Give an, can you give an example or two of how that, how that might trickle down, if you will, to the patient? Well, it's, it's 
like anything else, physicians have to, to maintain their payer mix within their practice. So if there's a 21% cut that happens on the Medicare side, well, then physicians you know, may have to limit the number of Medicare patients that they can see because they still have, obviously, obligations and bills within the practice, pay their staff and, and, and other bills that come, come with having a practice. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the big impacts that, that, that hits the physician because then they're not able to accept new Medicare patients. And so it, it, it's constantly putting, being put on the back of the physicians what the government is not living up to its obligations that has promised the seniors who have paid into this system since the 1960s. And the way it works, if you're listening and you're not a, a provider, is that when you have insurance, with commercial insurance, there's a contract rate for your services for Procedure X. In this case, in our practice, it's hyperbaric medicine, for example. You get hyperbaric medicine therapy. And so if you're Blue Cross Blue Shield, for example, there's the rate that they negotiate you know, and as we've talked about earlier, um, with that contractor. Well, Medicare is I, I, uh, probably at least a third, if not more, less than that. Correct. Uh, on everything. Correct. Sometimes significantly less than, than you know, even two-thirds of whatever, a, you know, normal rate would be for a given procedure. And then, you know, today we get a letter that says, oh, that's going down 21%. Correct. So... Uh, it's it when you look at an, a, an, an example like a cardiology office, for example, they have a nuclear stress test device that does, um, you know, stress tests and they requires extremely expensive uh, radioactive material to do those types of tests. That stuff costs a ton of money. It's not just a an office space that the doctor and his nursing staff are walking around in that right. he's got to pay rent on. It's it's. The, the equipment that uh, those specialists tend to use to provide their care is extremely expensive. And to operate it on a daily basis, to pay for it on a monthly basis, right. those are based on what they know to be, okay, this is my general revenue based on my general mix right now. So, okay, we can afford this. We can do this and we can provide this service. So now all of a sudden they're finding out midway through, they're already committed, the equipment's already here, that now all of a sudden this, what tends to be a fairly significant portion of a patient population is going to reimburse at a rate of 21% less. Correct. And, and, and what, what HR2 does is that it provides stability, patient, uh, st- stability payments uh, for physicians for five years uh, with minimal increases, um, but at the same time, there's no more threat of, of having to um, sustain a cut in that same time period, but also starts to reward physicians who get into alternative payment systems and decide, well, we're going to try a different um, payment methodology. We're going to try something. We're going to get together. We're going to integrate, collaborate. So those physicians are able to get an increase in their Medicare payments. But also what it does is there's a lot of um, what you would call, you know, instead of the carrot, a lot of sticks um, with meaningful use, with, um, you know, physician quality reporting systems and all these other ways that the federal government has used Medicare in order to um, to cut the payments to the physicians, it gets rid of those sticks um, in 2018, does not renew them, but comes up with a new um, merit-based payment system that rewards physicians um, for being cost-efficient, for um, you know saving costs to the system. Now, I've heard the some discussions about meaningful use and about you're talking about merit-based reimbursement kind of structures. How does that? How do those work? 
I mean, how do they, you know, compare to today? Currently, what will happen is um, you will lose 1%, 2%, w- whatever it is under the current um, systems, like if it's meaningful use or physician quality reporting, um, how much do you use your medical records, that, that and, 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 and are you using it in such a way that would qualify as meaningful use of the medical yeah, records. Yeah, because as it relates to the electronic medical records, that's where the meaningful use thing comes in because they got some funds to be able to implement them because they're expensive. Correct. And they want to make sure that you're actually using them like they're like you're supposed to be. Correct. Um, and, and then as it relates to the, the kind of the merit-based and quality-based reimbursement, how is that taking shape? How are we going to track that in a way that doesn't make things get really crazy? Well, it looks to um, medical specialty societies but also others – that would agree on what would be considered, you know, quality indicators. Now, the, the the real, you know, devil is always in the details. Is how do you define quality? Right. And so that's always where um, there's a little bit of of always a little bit of consternation on how do we get there. That's where I'm consternated. Yes. Yes. <laughs> how are we going to evaluate and, that? And that's always the challenge. But under the current system, with the threat of cuts that happened, as you well know, last time was a year ago. Before that, I think three years ago, they had three patches in one year. So all of a sudden, you know, physicians got to the point, they said, well, you're putting us under this undue strain. We're caring for the patients, but the government's not living up to its obligations to these patients. And so we've got to find a way to fix this system. And so over 700 medical societies have have uh, supported um, HR2, which you know, is, is, is a feat amongst itself as an accomplishment because it's very hard to get that many organizations on board to support um, moving away from a, a flawed payment system to a new payment system. It's not the perfect bill by any means, but at least it's a step in the right direction to start to ensure that patients have their access to their doctors. And I think that there's probably a lot of folks out there in the community that kind of leave this to the politicians and leave this to the folks that kind of interface with them, and they'll they'll hammer it out and take care of me. But it seems to me that that even our people that would end up being patients or who are patients. We, we need to start paying a little bit more attention and actually starting to talk about things a little bit because, I mean, the, the, the changes that are being made today in the last year or two, I mean, the landscape was, was, it was like a hurricane blew through um, with regards to the sweeping breadth of the changes and how traumatic some of them were. Exactly. And, and just to take you back to the electronic medical records, part of the problem, the, the, the vision is that if everybody's using, if all the physicians are using electronic medical records and the hospitals are, the nursing homes and everybody, that theoretically, if I, Donald Palmisano, get into an accident somewhere, then the doctor or the hospital can pull up my information Mm -hmm. and it would be accessible all of my care in Georgia and even nationally. Mm -hmm. But here's the problem. You have multiple electronic health care vendors that um, they're not interoperable. Yes. So... While the physician may be on one rec- on one system, the hospital's on another system, but yet those systems don't talk. And so that's what's causing the frustration from the physician side is they feel like they're becoming more clerks, just checking the boxes when they're not what where is the meaningful information that's supposed to be shared so that they can get all the information on their patients so that they can make the correct diagnosis and have that information readily available. So that's another challenge that we're dealing with is how do you deal with these vendors that are fighting interoperability because they claim that their systems are proprietary, but yet there's no sharing of information, right? Yeah. So then it falls back on the physicians again 
to sit there and bear the cost of this. So the physician buys the electronic medical record, but then there's the annual upkeep of this electronic medical record. And then you have situations when the physicians are trying to meet meaningful use standards, so they don't get dinged that 1% to 2%. They're trying to meet the physician quality reporting systems, all these other ones that so they don't get dinged. So what happens is it's just a data dump to the physicians. And so it's hard for them to look at the data and say, am I meeting what I'm supposed, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing with these electronic medical records so that I don't get these dings? So that goes to how complicated the system has become within the physician's practice. For, for the providers that are listening, what's the, what's the suggestion in today's climate, that's being what it is, that it's obviously complex and many of them are kind of getting caught in that uh, discount trap, if you will, that says, oh, you're not meeting meaningful use. What kind of strategies are, are folks actually successfully deploying to, to kind of address that? Are they going to some sort of outside consultant, if you will, such that the cost of that consultant is less than the, the cost of my decreased reimbursement, so now I can know I'm meaningful use, and I'm not getting the discount, so that's why I had to pay this guy over here to do consulting work. How, how, how do they tackle that, that piece to know that they are meeting the requirements of the meaningful use side? Well, on the meaningful use side, um, it, it, a lot of them, depending on if they're in now integrated, you know, integrated um, systems or if they've come into different IPAs, independent physician associations that have come together that are forming as um, accountable care organizations. They do have consultants, and they're the, the next generation of consultants are now saying, well, let's narrow down the information that you actually need and no longer provide that data dump. But most importantly, I would say that it's, it's imperative that physicians become members of organized medicine because if we don't hear about the exact problems that are happening, we cannot effectively advocate for them. And so we need that information. And so that's what we do as their professional society is let those in government know and those in um, administrative offices know that these are the challenges that physicians are having and that um, here are the examples. And when people see that, you, you'd be surprised. The legislators, when they start to see that and they start to see the examples and they know the doctors in their area and they start to really get the stories, then they understand it and they say, you know what, this has got to stop because why? It's impacting patients. Well, that's the thing that, that's been so frustrating from my perspective without waxing too political is, is the notion that the whole, the, the, that everything really hinges around the physician in terms of our costs. And um, some of the physicians drive around in a nice car and they live in a nice home, so if clearly they make too much money is kind of the, the thought. So we can, they can afford to pay, get paid a little less. You know, uh, and that that in my mind is such a it's just it seems it has very grave unintended consequences that we're talking about here. Yeah. But, you know, what people overlook is that physicians bring big economic output. They're employers. Exactly. Into communities. We have parts of Georgia where the physician is the largest employer in that area. So not only do they improve yeah. the health, they improve the economic output in their yeah, area. Think about that. Exactly. They bring over $29 billion in taxes, um, you know, state, local governments. I mean, what physicians bring, um, they bring jobs to the area. And so that's what's really important. And so, you know, it, it's it, they become the leaders in the community. And so it's extremely important to have them as, as, as part of that and not to sit there and say, well, uh, we don't need this particular business anymore because you lose the physician in the community, you lose economic output, but you also lose the health of that particular community. 
Donald Palmisano from the Medical Association of Georgia is joining us in studio. We've been talking about some of the changes that have been sweeping across our medical landscape as it relates to insurance contracting and so forth. And and on that note, from what I understand, there were some changes last year as it relates to the um, the Georgia Insurance Commissioner uh, facing Blue Cross Blue Shield of Georgia. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. Um, about a year ago, um, we had met with Blue Cross Blue Shield, and we were obviously trying to improve relationships um, between the, the, the physicians and, and Blue Cross, uh, because Blue Cross does have a substantial portion of the insured business in the state, you know, with the state health benefit plan, um, but also through the commercial market. And so we sat down with Blue Cross, came to some sort of rough agreement where um, if there was any changes that were coming out that physicians needed to know about, um, if there were any con- con- contract issues, that we would be you know, notified of that early on so that we could you know, let the physicians know, get some feedback. Well, what happened was a- an amendment was sent to about 6,000 physicians. And what this amendment to the contract, what actually the amendment was longer than, than some of the contracts the physicians had. Um, the amendment tried to consolidate all the contracts. And so there were also some very onerous provisions in there, such as um, I, th- I believe one provision was that if the physician, um, you know, treated a Blue Cross employee badly, they can be kicked out of the network. Well, it's a very subjective standard, right? So like you're saying on the the reimbursement side of things, I get on the horn and go, ah, I didn't get paid, blah, blah, blah. Bye. Correct. <laughs> Correct. And, and, and so when we, so what we, you know, we were not put on notice of that amendment going out. Um, a lot of the physicians had problems because the fee schedule wasn't readily available. So the, the the examples that they were given did not match when the fee schedule came back out and it wasn't a full fee schedule. So you're asking physicians to say either they're going to accept this amendment or they're going to be out of the network, but yet the physicians aren't given all the information to be able to run it from the business side of it right. and say, is this contract conducive to my practice? So what we ended up doing is bringing it to the commissioner of insurance attention and the commissioner took a look at it and said you know this is going to adversely impact patients and so he required uh, blue cross to rescind those contracts and so that amendment is still hanging out there it has not been resent out yet but at this point blue cross to their credit has um, has decided to work closer with us going forward they put together a physician advisory committee which has now met once and the, the the benefit of this physician advisory committee has been to to kind of flesh out some of these issues ahead of time so that we don't have to get to the point where we're seeking a legislative relief or we're seeking an administrative relief it's let's try to work these issues out on the front end because ultimately it's the patients that are impacted because what happens is you decrease access to care for patients and that's not good for anybody especially right. these patients are paying their you know they're paying for these insurance policies but yet they're not getting the benefit of them so does the the discussion side of this and the interfacing, does that all kind of rely and hinge on kind of the insurance commissioner and medical association of Georgia, or can can the physicians in the community and even patients somehow get in, engaged with this kind of dialogue, uh, whether it's on this particular company or others? I, I, I would encourage, um, you know, physicians and patients, if you have any problems um, or any questions on, on health insurance issues, to feel free to give us a call. Uh, also, um, the Commissioner of Insurance does provide a, a complaint procedure and that um, physicians and patients can also call up over there because the, you know, the Commissioner is, is, is Commissioner Ralph Hudgens is looking out for the patients and for okay. the consumers in the state. And I, I guess that's where a lot of these discussions kind of bubble up is 
that's kind of where they first surface is some sort of friction occurs out of a change that came about and either it gets found on the reimbursement side of things or some sort of network you're in network now you're not in network that kind of thing Correct. what do you mean that kind of change happens or a patient in, on the other end has some sort of change in their status that they didn't anticipate and they call the commissioner's office and then all of a sudden now we're having this conversation correct and, and that goes back to the director is, is a great example of that is you'll see where on the directories, and we've had this multiple complaints on this, where um, physician is listed on the directory, patient shows up to receive care. When payment is submitted, it turns out that the insurance company, not, not particularly to Blue Cross, just an insurance company in general will say, oh, no, that, that they're no longer in the directory. And then once you continue to press, you find out, no, they're actually in the directory. It's just that maybe the systems or the, it, it, the contracts haven't been downloaded yet. But most patients don't know that. So the patient just accepts stop, right. the out-of-network and just says, well, I'll just pay for it myself. So again, patients are being impacted, yet they don't know that. Keep pushing the insurance companies. Make them tell you why they're not paying for that claim. And I would assume they should be able to do that in writing uh, of changes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's always don't accept the first instance where they say they're denying the claim. You know, it's, it's to keep pushing them and say, why are you denying this claim? And to get the information and a lot of times, it's usually uh, more of a mistake that's happened. Something that I've heard as it relates to the insurance slash uh, you know, re reimbursement side of things deals with all products, all or, all or nothing clauses. What, is that, what does that mean for physicians and patients? Uh, essentially, what happens is that um, um, an insurance company will come to a doctor and say, you're going to take all of our products. You're going to take our workers' comp product. You're going to take our Medicaid product. You're also going to take our state health benefit product. If you want to continue to take our PPO product or HMO product, you've got to take everything we offer and everything we will offer in the future, or else you're not going to be part of the network. <laughs> so you can imagine the problem this is. <laughs> yeah. Let's say that you're a small practice in rural Georgia, and you're not equipped to handle workers' comp patients because workers' comp patients, there's a lot more paperwork on the workers' comp side. Than in, than in the commercial market. So the physician now has to take a worker's comp product that they may not have the ability to take. Or uh, you have certain products that require prior authorizations or pre-authorizations. So by way of an example, let's say that you have asthma and you've been uh, on Singulair for the last year. The insurance company says, you know what, it's been a year, we want, we want to do a prior authorization. Um, so now the doctor's like, well, why do I have to prior... Prior, you know, get a prior authorization for something that the patient's already been on for this entire time. Right. Those are the kind of games that are played. And so the physician may say, I don't want to take this product anymore, but I'll, I'll take these other products. And so what ends up happening is that it puts a burden on the physician to take all the products. Now, we both know that Medicaid pays less than the cost of providing the service. Yes. So when you're forcing the physician to now take a Medicaid product where they can take some Medicaid, but the majority of their practice can't be Medicaid because... They just, they're losing, yeah. it, it pays 80 cents on the dollar to the physician's office. So they're losing money every time they take a Medicaid patient. Those are the type of things that, the games that are played and put, again, on the backs of the physicians to the detriment of the patients. So is that being tackled along with the others, or is there an kind of a discussion or work being done as to address that sort of practice? That, that's also included in Senate okay. Bill 158. Okay, so that's kind of sweeping and includes most of what we're talking about. Correct. And we've brought that, that issue has been around for quite some time. And, and this is an issue that, um, especially when um, payers are trying to expand their presence in a state, 
um, especially with the health with the health insurance exchanges, they're now trying to get the doctors to take any and all of their products, which again, it may be a higher deductible product that the physician's office just cannot handle if you know payment isn't made or the deductible isn't met. And so from what I understand, this sort of practice, the ability to have an all or nothing clause is a state by state kind of arrangement. From what I understand, there are several states out there that prohibit this now. Is that is that right? That's correct. Yeah. And so it, 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 because insurance is regulated by the states, it falls within the Even insurance. Even in D.C.? Even in D.C., <laughs> yes. So speaking of Medicaid, where, where are things standing in Georgia as it relates to kind of the landscape of Medicaid now with all the changes that have happened in the last year or two? Well, what, what the legislature just ended. Um, for the first time um, since 2002, um, there will be an increase – um, in Medicaid payments to physician to primary care physicians that accept Medicaid, um, it's it's not to what the payment rate was um, before um, for the years 2013 and 2014, but it's still an increase um, that will help open up the doors for physicians' offices to see more Medicaid patients, especially primary care. There was a JAMA article that came out, um, I believe, in September of last year that said that when you increase payments to primary care offices, they can't definitively say that more physicians took Medicaid patients, but what they did say is that there were more appointments taken uh, by physicians for Medicaid patients. And so that's a real big step for the state. Uh, we, you know, we want to thank you know, Governor Deal, also um, the House and the Senate, the budget chairs, for all their work in ensuring that um, we take steps forward to ensure that these patients are being seen. So are we going to be able to, with it being on the on the growth a little bit, are we going to be able to fund that going forward? Is it, or do we have the ability to, to pay for that kind of a program as we go forward? Um, it's, it's always challenging um, to pay for a program in the state because, um, you know, the state's always subject to recessions but also growth. But I would say that um, you take it on a year-by-year basis. Um, you know, when you have a healthier population, um, it brings more revenue to the state. And so um, I just want to you know, commend the, the, the state government for, for taking a look at it and recognizing the value um, that physicians bring to the community. We've been talking with Donald Pomizano, uh, CEO of Medical Association of Georgia, about the Senate Bill 158 and all the things it addresses as it relates to the insurance contracting landscape, um, a little bit about uh, Medicare and Medicaid. Um, before we have to jump off the air, do you want to talk about things like I know there were some, uh, the name tag bill and things like that. Any other issues out there that you kind of want to talk about before we have to jump off? Well, um, actually two issues. One is um, the General Assembly passed, although it still awaits the governor's signature, is a bill that just requires uh, physicians and other providers just to have some sort of identification on them that so that a patient knows who is actually treating them. Because we, we do have a number of studies out there. Um, that, that show that patients want to know who is actually treating them. Is it the physician? Is it an optometrist? Is it a chiropractor? Is it a dentist or what have you? Just so that in, in the age of transparency and knowing um, who is delivering the care, um, that that information is readily available. And talk about the doctor of day, because I know that's something that you do annually. And, and talk a little bit about that. I don't know if everybody knows what you're doing there. Uh, the doctor of the day program is a service that we provide at the General Assembly uh, during the legislative session. And so we, we have a nurse uh, that, that, that staffs 
the uh, the med- what we call the medical aid station. It's basically just a first aid station. And then we have doctor volunteers um, that come down and give a day of their practice to uh, to man the aid station, for lack of a better term, so that if legislators or staff or anybody in the, you know in the general assembly that day, whether it just be people visiting. Um, they have a sore throat, they have a headache, or they trip and fall, that there's medical care available um, to protect the public and, and to protect those that are serving uh, the citizens. And one of the things that I know that you were doing, there was a program that was going on with the Georgia Hospital Association that uh, dealt with how patient communication was handled uh, to enhance patient care. You want to share we, a little bit about that? We were working um, through a grant with the, with the Georgia Hospital Association, uh, looking at re- trying to reduce readmission rates back to the hospital um, when patients were, were uh, discharged from the hospital. And so we work with several small practices across the state. Um, Getting in, them interfaced with like primary care? Correct. Okay. Correct. Working with the patient-centered medical home. And so uh, it, it's it's been a great interaction, especially with the physicians in that community, with the hospital. Um, it's amazing what, what happens when, when, when the whole community comes together and can work on something. When we talk about a patient-centered medical home, what exactly are we talking about there? Um, in its simplest terms, it's uh, having the primary care physician as um, the first contact with the patient. And then they can evaluate the patient, make sure they had their vaccinations, do their annual checkups, their annual physicals. And then if there's another issue manage the care with, um, you know, with other specialists and what have you. And so um, what, what is shown is that the patient-centered medical home has, has reduced costs into the system. How has it done that? Uh, by having the patient go and, and, and see the, the primary care physician. A lot of times the primary care physician can look at something and say, well, you probably you don't really need a specialist for this. Uh, but also we want to make sure that you're coming in for your vaccinations. And, oh, wait, we just noticed that you have a bump here. This could be cancerous and refer them to the right specialist. Has that helped with duplication of care in any way where they're kind of almost advocating on behalf of that patient? They know kind of what's going on in their whole picture and, and keeping them from getting studies or procedures maybe in more than one place where there's some overlap between specialists. The, the whole purpose of it is to reduce that duplication yeah, yeah. And, and to try to, to, to get some of the costs out of the system that, that, that is as a result of that duplication. Well, what other, what other things are co- coming on? Do you got any events that are coming up that folks need to know about with uh, the medical association? Um, I would say one thing. Um, we've had um, a physician um, that has been a member of MAG. He's uh, Dr. William um, DeBlaw. He's come down with um, an aggressive uh, metastatic uh, lymphoma. Yeah, that's right. We shared that yet the other day oh, on perfect. Facebook, actually. My, it prompted my wife to register as a marrow donor, actually, oh, excellent. hearing that story. Excellent. And so uh, we just want to get the word out. Um, and, and, and if you gave the information yesterday, you can also go to our website, which will take you directly to um, to hit the, to the foundation site that is helping him. Because they haven't marrows. yet identified a donor that can help him yet. Correct. Yeah. Based on the knowledge that we have at this right. point. Yeah. Well, I'm certainly happy to be able to get some information about that. And, and when I saw that, I certainly turned around and shared it. So hopefully the folks out there listening, if you haven't done that already, link up with us on, on Facebook at Top Docs on BRX, and you'll be able to find that. Mag is out there on Facebook and Twitter as well. And when you, when you find that story, make sure you turn around and share it with your networks because there may just be somebody out there that you know um, directly or indirectly uh, through those social media networks that actually could end up being a person that's not only willing but able to help that individual or, you know, if in the case of Julie, my wife, be somebody that 
became aware of this now and and uh, just hearing that story made her um, kind of stand up and say you know I want to be somebody that uh, in the end could possibly help save that person because from what I understand when they do get that donor more often than that it that more or less results in a cure or, right. right so yes. yeah I mean please turn around and, and share that information I'm really excited to to help you with that and um, any final thoughts before we have to let you get back over to the office to to start going to bat for the patients in Georgia? I, I would just say that um, if, if, there, if you have any questions or you want to have um, a better understanding of what goes on in the health insurance marketplace or just the issues that physicians are dealing with generally, um, go to www.magmag.org, um, and we have um, a, a lot of information up there. And um, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us. And we do have Twitter account and, and a Facebook account. Mm-hmm. Uh, my Twitter account is uh, D Palmisano Mag, so D P A L M I S A N O M A G, and also um, the Mag Twitter account is um, at M A G eighteen forty nine. That's right, and we're tied in there also. Um, and you know, if you come up, if you're a physician that's been listening to the show, maybe you're a Mag member, maybe you're not. We we hope you become one because clearly. Um, they need your action action and participation, and, and certainly I think it's fair to say that the physicians need yours here with Medical Association of Georgia. But if you're also a patient, either way, if you're a provider or a patient and you come up with a question for our experts uh, like Donald today, and maybe you didn't get a chance to do so during the show, if you tweet us a question, if you send us a question through Facebook or through email from the show's page, I, I will get it to our experts and get you back an answer. Um, as soon as I'm able. So please make sure that you engage with our uh, our experts and get your questions answered because that's what we're all about here is to share information both ways and, and make sure that uh, the folks in the community and the providers in the community are getting the latest information that will help them do what they do. So um, thanks to you, Donald. I always enjoy having you on the show, and uh, you're so well-spoken, and obviously clearly there's much to talk about. So I look forward each month to having you guys on on the second Tuesday of every month to sit down and uh, see what's going on with uh, Medical Association of Georgia and all the work that you're doing. So, well, thank appreciate you. It. We really do appreciate this opportunity, and thank you. For this. You do an excellent job. So, thank well, you. Well, it's been uh, a lot of fun getting to know you and your 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 staff there at the Medical Association of Georgia. And like I say, if you haven't done so already, go to Twitter and Facebook. Link up with Top Docs at Top Docs on BRX. Um, tweet to us where you're listening to us from. We've been listened to in like 50 countries and. And not all 50 states have listened to Top Docs Radio. Uh, North and South Dakota haven't jumped on the bandwagon yet, and Vermont hasn't. Well, Wyoming, too. So <laughs> Buffalo and the, and, the, and the deer and elk haven't really jumped in right. and started <laughs> listening to our show. But everybody else is, and we're very glad you have. So Donald Pomizano, Medical Association of Georgia, uh, thanks for making time today. And to you out there listening from wherever you're listening to us from, we want to say thank you. We really appreciate your time uh, and, and sitting down with us today. And uh, please turn around and pass it on. Thanks a lot. We'll see you then. Thank you.